You're listening to Mid-Moment. I'm Lori Patton, president of Middlebury and professor of religion. In this special series, I'm checking in with our community to see how people are doing so that we might get a better idea of what it's like to be alone together. Today, I'm speaking with Jessica St. Clair and Dan O'Brien. Jessica is a writer and comedian. She created and starred in the TV show, Playing House. And you may recognize her from her roles in Veep, Weeds, or even the movie Bridesmaids. Her most recent role is in the Netflix comedy Space Force, which will air this month. Dan is a poet and playwright. His work includes War Reporter, a poetry collection based on the work of journalist Paul Watson, and the play The Body of an American. His most recent play, The House in Scarsdale, a memoir for the stage, was awarded the 2018 Pan America Award for Drama. O'Brien's fourth collection of poetry, Our Cancers, will be published in 2021. Jessica and Dan are a true power couple in the arts that met in a Middlebury College improv group. Dan and Jessica, it is such an honor for me to have you on the show. I want to ask how you're doing. Um, We always begin with a check-in. Well, I wish we were at Middlebury in 1998. I'll play that one. Um, No, we're doing okay. I am somewhat surprised how we've been getting used to the lockdown and this Mm. this new lifestyle. And and maybe I shouldn't be surprised because, again, you know, part of what we experienced several years ago was how, whether you like it or not, you end up adapting. Mm. I wanted to... uh, pivot to that, which is, you know, the essay Life Shrinks kind of describes that. I'm very interested in the moment that you both decided to think about writing and evaluating your life as people who were simultaneously ill in the essay Life Shrinks. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the moment that you decided to write that piece and why. It was very natural, you know, as as many people, I think, have had a similar experience that they've had where suddenly it just felt like something that I'd experienced as intensely private seemed to be playing out outside with, with everybody. You know, there was something so kind of amazing and uncanny, I think is the word I used in the essay, because it was also unsettling. I, I just felt I needed to, wanted to, to write about it, mostly because I wanted to figure out what I was feeling. You know, it's, it's sort of a, a cliche about writing, but that idea that you, you write you don't write what you know, you write, you write what you want to find out, what you hope to find out. You write from a place of, of unknowing towards some sort of insight um, about yourself. So it really was about me trying to figure out, you know, why is this so familiar? To be completely uh, honest, I was probably having flashbacks yep. to feeling like, am I somehow back in treatment? I look out the window and everybody's kind of in treatment. And I'm having to behave in ways that were like treatment wishing that time would pass quickly is like something that you feel when you're in treatment. You're like, Oh my God, if only I can get to the end of this chemo or whatever, and then I can get back to life. And we finally got back to life. And then we're thrust back into this like time where you just want time to pass. And that made me really angry. Like I I didn't want to go back to like a year missing again. You know, I was a bit more, um, stoic about it like oh I guess some version of this is happening again I can rely on some of the skills I learned four years ago to to get through this and Jessica had more of resistance 
you know, anger, denial, you know, more of a fight. She's fight, I'm flight. We really fought very hard to protect our daughter from ever knowing we were sick. And we succeeded. Like, I remember going to a sleep person about uh, BB was like getting out of bed or having nightmares or something like normally, like a normal kid would. And I, I told the sleep person who was a psychologist what, it, what had gone on in her second year of life. And they were like, this is shocking, but she shows no signs of trauma at all, like none. So we did a really good job and it definitely took a pound of flesh to like hide that from her. But this we cannot protect her from. We can't hide it from her. And she is getting affected just like all children are. And so I think we both have a parental instinct to like make sure this impacts her the least amount possible. Like I keep joking that we moms are going to make, are going to save summer no matter what, like we're superheroes or something like we, you know, and we're always trying to like, okay, how can we like minimize risk here, but still have them have fun? You know, right. so that's part of it is I didn't want to accept that she would have this pain, you know, that she would have yeah. to be isolated from her right. friends. You, you will share with her when she's older? Yeah, we will. I mean, that's sort of an ongoing question for us, just when. I'm going to wait until she like, like steals our car and like drives to Vegas when she's 16. And then I'm going to be like, do you know what happened and what I did for you? I've written so much about it. And Jessica's created a TV show, a season. Yeah. Of that. So, you know, on one hand, it'll be out there. On the other hand, most kids, children of do writers and care. artists don't care <laughs> about the art that their parents create. That's right. They don't care. Oh. Baby never cares. When she sees me on television, she's like, turn it off. Or like, she'll oh. say like, the only thing I wish is that you would wear that much makeup at home. Right. <laughs> Thank like, you so yeah. much, six and a half year old B. That's great, isn't it? Now you've had a couple months of, of quarantine. Is it still the same as when you wrote Life Shrinks or does it feel different than what you went through when you both had cancer? I mean, what I've been thinking more about lately, and I've just written a, a new essay for the American Scholar about how reopening reminds me of remission or finishing treatment and being as we were in a place where we were declared cancer-free and no evidence of disease. And so the, the challenge was, how do we go back to quote unquote normal life? So if anything, it's kind of transitioned into a different uncanny, similar phase where I'm relating our personal experience to the social or cultural experience. Right. The thing that I quote from the essay is about the wilderness path of recovery. Oh, right. Which is exactly, it has been much more complex and anxiety producing in a certain way for Middlebury to think about what its stages of recovery might look like. I, I really uh, love that phrase because it really speaks to something about remission or recovery being harder in a way than the emergency itself. And it's also where different values come up. It's where anxieties are freer, you know, you can express your anxieties in a different way. And when there's like an emergency, there's a lot of adrenaline that goes into like survival mode. And then when that goes away, you're like, okay, I'm left with these emotions. I'm left with what's my plan. And then everyone has a different risk level. So like certain people in, in remission would be like, I have a glass of wine every day. And you're like, well, I never drink, you know? And it's like, so everyone's going to handle it differently. I just remarked to a friend of mine, when people talk about what kind of measures are going to be put in place, like with school and, and work and keeping people safe, 
it's hard for me not to get a feeling of like, is this just us acting out our anxiety about it? Like, or will these measures really have an impact? Because after you have cancer, there's a lot of magical thinking that goes on a little bit about what you can do to protect yourself. Like, you know, you don't, Dan doesn't eat sugar anymore. We don't drink alcohol. We work out every day religiously. We eat fruit and vegetables. The other side of that magical thinking is my father-in-law of blessed memory who never ate a vegetable in his life and lived till he was 92, right? That's right. right. When you all were together addressing your illness, how did you live through the commonality, which no one would wish on anyone? Couples want to have stuff in common, but this is not it, right? Yeah, I mean, it was was, um, shocking. You know, I probably delayed getting my diagnosis because I had trouble imagining what are the odds that while Jessica's in treatment, I could also be yeah. suffering from cancer. Um, and so I probably delayed, I know I delayed actually dealing with some symptoms, you know, because it just, it seemed so improbable um, that it would happen at the same time to two relatively young people. We checked out our home. We had, an, we had people come and test things in our home. Could we have some sort of environmental carcinogen that caused it. Um, and, you know, I find it compelling that that we were living near the World Trade Center on 9-11 and at Jessica's, um, it was Jessica's apartment that I would stay at. It, you know, her apartment was covered in dust. And even though it was cleaned, you know, if we, we were living there for six months or so. And I remember complaining of sore throats all the time that I felt like there was still a dust re- residue. And and I have read that there seems to be a certain, you know, sweet spot of 12 to 14 years after a major environmental insult, um, I think is the term they use, before uh, a lot of cancers develop. So the timing from 9-11 to Jessica's diagnosis in 2015 and mine six months later does make me wonder about, um, about that. Also because I don't have any family history of colon cancer, and I don't have any um, known genetic markers. Um, yeah. so that's a little suspicious to me too. Going back to like wanting control, I think there's a real sense, like a human desire to figure out what gave it to you and how you can right. not get it again. Mm-hmm. And there's also a sense of blame that you can put on yourself that you gave it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I think people have to be really careful of that. I certainly looked at my job because I was working 14, 15 hour days. I I starred and wrote and created my own show, which like very few people do for this reason. It's extremely exhausting physically. And we had a two-year-old at the time. And so I, I really reinvented like my schedule, you know, and I, and how I work, but I have to say, like, I don't think that gave me cancer either, you know, and I don't necessarily think 9-11 did, you know, they say like, that your genetics load the gun and then environment can fire it. But like, I also think sometimes it just happens. And that's why like, I also hate it when someone says like, oh, I got COVID because I went to the grocery store that one time. Like, no, you didn't do the wrong thing. You know, what you just said, Jessica, shows how much wisdom your previous experience gave you and how you can bring that wisdom to the current COVID environment. You know, you're not just bringing the everyday wisdom because you're talking to, to me, but you're really bringing your own experience into the creation of work that you're doing in response to this pandemic right now. I, I would love to 
hear more, and I think our mid-audience would love to hear more about the monologue that Dan wrote and Jessica acted in. Yeah, it's, it's uh, part of this um, group called the 24-Hour Plays in New York. Uh, and normally for years, they, they do short plays live in a theater where the writers have had 24 hours to, or maybe 12 hours to write and 12 hours to produce it. And as soon as the lockdown started, uh, they pivoted to doing these viral monologues, they call it. So the playwright will write, write a monologue overnight and they'll pair the playwright with an actor who will then have to memorize it and record it and they'll post it within 24 hours. So I cheated the system somewhat and said, I want to do this, but I want my wife to perform it. <laughs> and they, they said, great, you know, because yeah. it's, it's Jessica St. Clair. Um, Please. There was, there was a certain... <laughs> They're like, who's that? <laughs> there was a certain challenge in that, you know, I, I do sometimes think I'm somewhat funny, but I tend to write pretty sad things, and she's right. very funny. So the challenge was to write, for me, was to write a monologue true to my voice, but that hopefully Jessica could connect to personally. But also they said that the challenge was you had to, as the actor, do something you'd never done before. And I said, you know, and, and I have done, I mean, I wrote about my own breast cancer journey in my own show. So that was quite dramatic. But I said, I haven't really ever been cast in something that like, you know, I have to do a fully dramatic monologue. So that's what. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, God, this is going to be so hard. <laughs> but, you know, my, my way in for that monologue was because it's a monologue about family estrangement. And that's something, you know, I'm estranged from my parents and most of my siblings and have been for about 14 years now. And Jessica's been with me that whole time. So for me to write about that and to have her embody some version of me just seemed like a no brainer, you know, it just seemed like a way that we could both tell, tell our story, tell the truth, you know, about what it's like to be estranged from family members, especially during COVID. something like this. Well, I, I often find that with my plays, if an actor, you know, is coming to the first rehearsal or has agreed to do a reading, if they say to me, I think this is kind of funny. Is this sort of, is there some humor in this? <laughs> yes. Like, and I always feel like they get it. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. overall, it might be serious or heavy, but yeah. I, I, it has lots of, of humor and irony, or hope it does, because that's, that's life. Or maybe it's because I'm Irish. You, you met, you know, you connected in that space at Middlebury and comedy improv. Did you fall in love in the comedy improv or did you fall in love after that? I was already in the group and then Jessica was a freshman. A yeah. freshman. Our first scene together, I proposed marriage to her. Oh, and, I mean, yes. how, how desperate is that? And she, <laughs> and she accepted. So, you know. So was it real? Did you have a discussion later about whether it was real or not? No, not well. It just, it took a few years for, for it to become official. And we played a married couple in a theater department uh, play as well. Neither of us would be doing what we do without Middlebury. It was everything for us. Thank you so much. You were going to give our Middlebury community such a joy to hear oh. this interview. 